Hey there, welcome to the Ben Learns About Everything podcast, a podcast where we can explore our worldview, learn about new things, and walk away with more knowledge than we had when we came in. And today, I've got a really good guest with me. He does a lot of film. He's a freelancer here in Grand Rapids, um, Kendrick Satterfield. You can find him at kendricksatterfield.com. And uh, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, Kendrick? Let us know a little bit about what you're doing right now and, you know, how you're doing. Hey, uh, like Ben said, my name is Kendrick. Um, I am a filmmaker here in Grand Rapids. Um, for those of you who are more familiar with film, I specifically work in the camera department as a first or second AC. Um, so they're the people that build the cameras and do the technical things, the cameras, pull focus, that type of thing. So that's where I spend a lot of my professional time. Uh, but like what we'll be talking about today, uh, I have a lot of interest in uh, cars and motorcycles uh, and the things that make them move forward. So that's another passion of mine. And so I want to know a little bit about what got you interested in cars and motorcycles. I know that you had a motorcycle at one point, you know, which I think you put a lot of work into and basically built from scratch. Do you want to talk a little bit about the first time you realized, you know, this is something I'm really interested in and want to dive more into? Yeah, so I think for me, and I know a lot of other people too, um, a car or a motorcycle or, or some form of like motorized transportation um, isn't just like a form of uh, transportation for me. So it's not just like I'm, I'm at A and I need to somehow facilitate me getting to point B. Um, it's more of a, a passion thing. Um, I think a, a car or whatever is just a way to facilitate like freedom and ability to go do things. Um, and it's a way to express like your passion and in, in doing that. There's a ton of subcultures when it comes to vehicles. Um, and I think it's just how a very large group of people just kind of bond and come together. Um, albeit an expensive way to bond and come together, but definitely a way to do it. Yeah, that's really cool. And I like how you frame that because I think a lot of the way that I think about my car is, you know, as a tool gets me from here to there and you know, when I, when I bought it, I was thinking about what's going to last the longest and what's got good mileage and some of those sorts of questions. But what do you mean when you say you can like express yourself through your vehicle? Like, what does that look like sort of as an art, I guess? Um, I mean, if you're into a lot of kind of modding, uh, you know, you can go, the pendulum can swing uh, really far in either direction. Um, when you go to kind of like certain Japanese subcultures, you have people who just do like crazy gaudy things and they'll have like six foot exhaust and, uh, just wild and practical things. But you know, that's like their, their thing. And that's what their group kind of enjoys. Um, so, I mean, there's that aspect to it. And then I guess the pendulum can swing in the exact opposite direction. And you just have people who do really practical performance related things to their cars to kind of um, you know, shed, shed weight and, uh, make it as, uh, performance driven as it can be. Okay. That makes sense. There's two, two different reasons you might mod your car. One to make it look cool, unique, and the other is then performance. Which one are you more interested in and ha have you been doing, um, in your own life then? Um, 
probably more practical things. Um, I'm not so much into aesthetic type things, and it's not even really so much performance. It's just things that make life easier. Um, and I was more concerned with that when I had my motorcycle. Um, right now, uh, I just drive a 2013 Honda Civic, and it's more of a investment until I sell it again. So okay. <laughs> not, not so much modding with that one. So it's an investment until you sell it again, as in you've bought it and you're upgrading it to flip it? Or like just right now it's giving you value? Yeah. So it's just facilitating transportation at the moment, and then it retains a lot of value. So when I sell it in a couple of years or something, you know, it's just uh, hopefully by the time I sell it, it'll only have lost maybe less than $1,000 or something. Okay. So it's sell again. really worth it. Yeah. Okay. And are you part of a group here in Grand Rapids then, which, you know, you said doing the mods can bring people together. Is there like a culture here which you've become a part of to do that? Sure. Um, one of the things that I haven't gotten the opportunity to do yet, but that I really want to go to is Cars and Coffee. Um, that's something that's across America, but that's just like a Saturday morning at different uh places around um town so it might be like a coffee place or whatever that they've you know talked to and the parking lot is just full of um cars and motorcycles ranging from classic muscle cars to exotic cars to just a really uh wide variety um and you basically just walk around people open their hoods you look at stuff you talk to the owner and you just uh, there's a sense of like camaraderie because you can see the work that they put into it and you know like when you're under your car and there's like three rusted bolts and stuff is you know that's the one bolt from the last owner who he didn't replace it because it was stripped and that was a huge hassle and you know he went through that too and there's just like a shared bond of like I know what it took to get here and you really did a cool job and I can you know appreciate the work that you put into it that's really cool um I like that a lot. Like I've heard about car shows, you know, and I've even seen, you know, a lot of really fancy cars drive by sometimes, I'm assuming, to, to shows like this. And I guess it takes a certain level of understanding to be able to really appreciate it. You know, I don't know if I could show up there without much knowledge about cars or modding cars and really love it as much as you might with your, with your knowledge and um, what you've done already. So what do you do then to learn more about, you know, cars and vehicles? Is it mainly all from experience, like what you've done on your motorcycle? Or do you read like a magazine or is it YouTube? Like where do you find out more information? Um, yeah. And could I interject something real yeah, quick? Yeah, of course. Um, so kind of going, um, uh, stemming from like the car show bit the thing that I think is most enjoyable about car and car culture for me specifically isn't so much that aspect of going and showing it off to other people I think there is a mutual appreciation that you know people in that car culture can appreciate and it's enjoyable but it's more of like the heritage aspect or like the the heirloom type of thing where like you can uh the idea of me getting a motorcycle now and keeping it for the rest of my life and then giving it to my son or daughter is I think really enticing to be able to say for the last 30 years I have worked on this and spent time in the garage and built it and shown you how to do it and now you can have it and do it. Uh, I think at the root of a lot of car culture 
there's that where you can pass something on and there's just a lot of like personal hours put into this uh, mutually where you worked on stuff together and now you can give it to the person that mattered to you. I like that a lot. And, you know, most motorcycles wouldn't last 30 years if no. you just bought it. And <laughs> right, so right. that's really like a testament to the amount of work that you're putting into it over the years. Yeah. And you're kind of adding that personal touch every every part of the way. Yep. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the motorcycle which you had and how did you get it? And, you know, where did it go? Where did it go as well? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my last semester of college, um, I had always wanted a, a motorcycle. Um, and, and my mother had always said that I don't care if you get a motorcycle, but you can't live with us anymore if you get one. Okay, <laughs> and so okay. I was graduated college and I was like, now's the time. Uh, and so there's this kind of grandpa figure, um, in Sparta, which is maybe 40 minutes away. And he had uh, several motorcycles, and he was trying to get rid of some. And it was a 1977 Honda CB750K, um, which was a special motorcycle because it was the last year that Honda was more um, kind of mechanical, and uh, they kind of had a push toward the consumer being able to fix things. Um, after that, they became much more electronic, and it was a lot harder for the consumer to be able to do stuff themselves. And it was easier just to go to the dealership and have them repair stuff for you. So <clears throat> when you're talking just about uh, being able to do stuff in your garage, it was kind of the last good year for that. Okay. And so that's the one which you got from uh, this figure, you know, who you had in, in Sparta. Yep. And then you brought it over here to Grand Rapids. You just drove it over and then... Yeah, so that whole first summer, I had it for one season. Okay. Uh, and I just drove it. It was, you know, it was just really cool. It was my first bike. And I, I had safety stuff. I had my leather coat and my helmet and my gloves and stuff. But I just remember one day when I was going to Kalamazoo and I was in the country. And I just, like, I put my feet on the passenger's foot pegs. And I laid my chest on the gas tank. And on a 1977 motorcycle, I went 100 miles an hour in the country. Whoa. <laughs> and uh, it, I don't know. It's just moments like that. They're a lot of fun, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I did that for a season. And I just drove it all summer. Had a lot of fun with it. And I knew uh, on the off season in the late fall and winter uh, and early spring that... Um, I just needed to do some stuff. I needed to change the oil, change the spark plugs. There was some basic stuff I wanted to do to it. Um, and as spring was getting closer, uh, we just had a random man in Grand Rapids who felt so compelled to burn people's garages down. And uh, he did that to mine and the bike caught on fire and was no more. That's a terrible thing to happen. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's just really random in a yeah. lot of ways, right? Yeah, but it, he was just like a random arsonist. Um, and he didn't actually burn down my garage. He burned down my neighbors, and then the grass caught on fire, and it burnt the wall that my stuff was on. Um, and it was just not really salvageable. Like, maybe if you stripped the engine out and you sandblasted the engine, like, if you put a lot of effort into it, maybe something was salvageable. But for all intents and purposes, it was, you know, totaled. So, and what did that make you feel like 
because you'd put a lot of work into this bike and you'd really wanted one for a long time. Right. Like, um, <laughs> there was one part of me that was relieved just because I was moving houses at that point and I didn't know if the house I was going to was going to have a garage and I didn't want to leave it outside uh, constantly. I mean, I could probably find a place in the winter, but I didn't want to leave it in the rain all summer. So that part was nice, um, even though the house I went to did have a garage. So, um, <laughs> uh, But no, it was sad. It was sad because I had a lot of good memories on it. Um, There's just a lot of that whole idea of like being able to keep stuff and work on it and put hours into it and have something be yours, um, kind of just caught on fire literally. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but you know, you kind of, um, move on and I had insurance, so it was covered. So it was all good, I guess in the end. Yeah. That's, that's a really helpful key key to that. So are you going to go ahead and get a new one then at some point? Would you like to, and you know, what are your plans for that? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the goal. Um, probably more when I get to a place where I know I'm going to be in a house for several years um, or an apartment or whatever. Uh, switching houses every year, every other year uh, just becomes difficult when you have multiple pieces of transportation um, because oftentimes you only have like a parking spot or something. And so being able just to facilitate where that goes becomes a a hassle. So once that kind of gets ironed out, I do plan on getting something else. Um, once you've ridden a motorcycle, you kind of understand that it's just a different feeling. It's a lot more, um, uh, tactile, I guess it's a lot more kind of, uh, you can feel the road and the wind and you can feel the power of the engine more. It's a cool experience. So I'd like to get that back again. That's really cool. Um, and I hope, you know, I wish you the best of luck getting one as well. <laughs> Thank and, you. Um, I hope it's one that you, you'll be able to keep for a really long time as well when you do, you know, pick one. Um, have you spent any time on your car then, now that you don't have the motorcycle kind of tweaking it, fixing it, the same sort of passion? Have you been able to do that at all on your, your new car that you've got? Um, just normal maintenance things. So like filters and oils and fluids and stuff like that. Um, but nothing past that just because um, right now my car I don't think is a specifically special era of Honda Civic. Um, So doing anything kind of past normal maintenance stuff wouldn't show any sort of value when you go to sell it again. You'd probably lose money. Um, So I'm just trying to maintain it until I sell it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so I think one of the things that you were going to, you know, teach us about today as well was, you know, sort of how the engine operates and how that works and um you know I don't really know much about them at all and so I'd love for you to you know sort of walk me through that yeah so um this is a definitely uh, a broad topic um so I thought maybe uh I would just go broad really quick and then kind of hone in on what is probably more um realistic to what we would see in our day-to-day okay that sounds good um, so when we're talking about engines, uh, the engines that we probably deal with most often are thermal engines. And so that's internal combustion, external combustion and reaction. Um, the majority of stuff we deal with are internal combustion engines. Um, external combustion would be like a steam engine, 
um, or like a nuclear reactor type of uh, turbine, that type of situation. Um, external combustion engines are just really heavy. There's not a lot of application to them. Um, and they're usually, you might find that in like a plant, like some sort of large factory that this isn't ever going to move. It's just like bolted into the floor right here. It, instead of a car, which you're going to be driving that around yeah, all exactly. over the place, you know, so just park it somewhere and, and leave it. Okay. Got yeah. It. Not really practical to ever move. Um, yeah. Uh, reaction engines are what you would see is like a jet engine, uh, or like a rocket engine. Um, something that has some sort of, uh, chemical reaction, um, something that doesn't necessarily need oxygen to combust or to, uh, create power. Um, and so I don't think most of us are going to deal with jet engines or rocket engines in our lifetime. Not yet, you know. <laughs> Not yet. Although there, there was a car from, I think, Chrysler in the 70s that was a jet engine. Okay. Was the idea that it was going to be really fast and... No, just, uh, I think it's a simpler, believe it or not, I think it was simpler than a normal combustion engine. Um, there is also talk of having a nuclear powered engine back wow. when nuclear power was like a really popular thing. But with a lot of car stuff, even today with, with new manufacturers, it's really hard to get stuff off the ground. So when you have radical ideas, it's hard for them not to die out. Yeah. Is there just like not enough funding for that and... Not enough funding, and then there's just a lot of kind of sway um, monetarily and politically to keep um, kind of traditional engines. You want to make them more efficient, but to have a completely new radical thing isn't really uh, always beneficial for some people economically or otherwise. Yeah, that, that does make sense. Um, yeah, so within thermal engines, those are the three kind of... Um, uh, like designations, of course, there are electrical engines and physical engines, which are a physical engine might be like a clock or pneumatic or hydraulic or something along those lines. Um, so it's interesting that you said clock. Let yeah. me pull that apart a little bit. Sure. Does that mean an engine is just any sort of moving parts to be a clock or how does, how does an engine and a clock relate? I don't understand like how those are the same. Sure. Um, I think it's just, uh, there's a fuel source. So with a, a clock, it might be um, something is winding a spring and then the spring is releasing energy and it's moving gears, um, which isn't all too dissimilar from a normal gasoline powered engine. Um, the The force uh, that's, that's spinning the clockwork might be different. It might be your hand that's spinning it or like a counterweight inside the clock or whatever, but there's some sort of fuel source that is, um, getting related to the pistons or the spring or whatever. And then that's being pushed out to the road or to the hands of the clock or what have you. Okay. That's, yeah, it's cool. I didn't know they were related, but that's, that's a really nice definition of it. Thank you for that. So when we were talking about internal combustion engines, um, this is kind of what we'll deal with, uh, every day. Um, most of what we deal with are kind of rod and piston engines. And so the amount of pistons can vary. It can be like a four piston engine, six piston, eight piston, 12, 10, 12, or 16, I think is 
the most common, um, even though you'll rarely ever see a 16, 12, or even 10 cylinder engine. It's usually only four, six, or eight. Um, but you'll have uh, within the whole engine, um, the whole premise of how this works is that uh, you have either a two stroke engine or a four stroke engine. Um, Two-stroke engines, usually you'll never see that in a car. Uh, you'll only see that in small engines like lawnmowers or weed whackers or motorcycles. Um, and within a two-stroke, the, the major difference of that is that um, your compression, combustion, um, let me look in my intake, compression, combustion, and exhaust all happens within two strokes of your rod and piston. So within your engine, you have your piston and it's connected to a rod. And then the other end of your rod is connected to your crankshaft, which ultimately puts power to your wheel, right? Your piston comes down on a four stroke. So like your car front, your and my car are both four stroke engines. The piston comes down and air comes into the engine. Um, it goes back up and all of that air gets compressed and then the spark plugs go off at the top of that compressed air and ignites the air fuel mixture that blows the piston back down uh, that's the combustion uh, stroke and then as it's coming down and back up uh, it pushes all of the gas out and so it's Intake, compression, combustion, exhaust. Okay. And then where does the gas get pushed into then? Or pushed out of? Right. So uh, once all of that burnt gas is combusted, right, and it needs to clear the cylinder, um, it goes out of your exhaust manifold. And one of the things that we could talk about is if your car um, has any sort of like forced induction, um, which we could get to maybe in a minute, but if it doesn't have forced induction, it goes out your exhaust manifold, um, and then uh, somewhere along the lines, it'll go through a catalytic converter, which is like an um, environmental thing. So it kind of cleans your exhaust gases, and it takes out pollutants and stuff like that. Uh, and then it goes out the rest of your exhaust and out the back of your car. Okay, that makes sense. There's a lot going on in there. And so for the four-piston... There'd be four of those chambers with the rods pushing air in and out of it. And yep. then with six, you just have more. So if you have, you know, more, more of these, that means that, you know, more um, pistons. Is that more power, more speed? How does that translate out of there? Sure. Um, that's kind of a complicated question because more doesn't always necessarily, more pistons doesn't necessarily always mean more power. Um you could have, uh, you, you really want displacement. So like it's the size of each cylinder. Um, it's the size of the piston. Um, you could have six pistons that are the size of your pinky nail and that's not going to put out as much um, kind of torque as and, and horsepower as one large piston that's the size of your head. Okay, yeah. Um, now the six piston engine that is the size of your pinky is going to move a lot faster uh, than the one large piston. So you're not gonna work off of like 
speed off of that one cylinder, right? Because you're relying on that one thing to like come up and down and up and down. And that's all you have. So there is something to say is say if you have like more pistons that uh, you can have um, more force being applied to your crankshaft because each they don't all work simultaneously. Okay. It's not six pistons all at once, but dung, but dung, but like up and down, up and down, up and down. They um, have a firing order, so every engine has an order with which each cylinder will fire. So there's a con- there should always be a combustion happening on the crankshaft from a cylinder. So there's always force being applied to the. So crankshaft. they're going to sequence like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And that's constantly happening so that you can always be moving, right? Yep. So there isn't like a a latency or a lag that having um, everything doing the compression all at once and there's a big amount of force. It's like more linear and smooth to have them staggered. The compression staggered. Yeah, I didn't know that at all. Um, Okay. Uh, And then I guess if we just want to to touch on briefly uh so the difference of something like a two-stroke then would be instead of with a four-stroke engine where your valves are on top of your cylinder um so your valves will open and close and let out exhaust gases and let in fresh air on a two-stroke you have two valves sort of on the side of the cylinder and so as the piston moves up and down on the cylinder it'll cover and open these valves on the side. Like I mentioned before, where um, these four, uh, the intake, compression, combustion, and exhaust, that happens in two strokes, right? As the piston goes up, it makes a vacuum and fresh air and gas comes into one of these, the lower valve through like a reed system. There's like a, a little, um, I don't know, uh, like a dam almost that kind of when the vacuum happens, it opens up, that mixture comes in, gets sucked up, and then as the piston goes back down from compression, it goes back up and can bust this new mixture. And this all just kind of happens uh, a lot more kind of fluidly, I guess I would say, than like a four-stroke engine. Um, but you'll just never see that being in a uh, a car or some sort of larger application just because two strokes are um, less efficient. They're not as good for the environment. They break easier um, because with two strokes, uh, you, you mix oil with the gas and oil loses some of its like lubricative properties when it's mixed with gasoline. So it's not as... Um, lubricated as a four-stroke engine where there's always oil sitting at the bottom of like your crankcase so like every time the piston goes down in a four-stroke engine it's throwing oil up and making the sides of the pistons kind of lubricated and so it'll last a lot longer than say like a two-stroke engine and so the oil then just keeps it running smoothly and then i guess would reduce the amount of damage which might happen from the pistons and friction and sure. everything which should be going on in there at the same time, right? Right. So um, maybe like worst case scenario, if you just never put oil in your car, like you drained all your oil out and you ran your car, um, 
to put it maybe in like simple terms, your engine would like weld itself together because it, within every cylinder, there's an explosion happening and there's so much heat being built up that your cylinder, uh, your piston would basically weld itself to the cylinder wall. And then it wouldn't work anymore. So and then you're done. <laughs> so then you need a whole new engine, right? And if you do it bad enough, you pretty much just need a whole new engine. If you really work on it, you can kind of um, unseize an engine, but it's a huge hassle and pain, and most of the time it's not worth it. Okay, so it's much more worth it just to put in the oil in your car. Yeah. Do you do you tend to do that yourself? Do you maintain the oil in your own car right now? Yep, so I will rarely ever take my car someplace just to get the oil changed, um, just because I think I have more of a... Um, I have more reason to do the job correctly than, um, someone whose car it's not. Um, just knowing that I put in this specific oil, uh, that has these ratings with this filter and I did it this way specifically makes me feel a lot better than a person that I'm not familiar with doing it. That makes sense. You, you have a real vested interest in your car. Exactly. You want it to work and you'll do it correctly. Right. Do you think more and more people are becoming less familiar with their vehicles these days? I, I tend to see a trend with that, but I don't know if that's true or not. Do you have any thoughts about, you know, that happening, people becoming more reliant on the dealership? Like you said, it's one, because it's kind of been changing as the cars become, you know, more complicated, I guess, with the internal computers and things like that. Do you, are you seeing a shift in that? And what does that mean, I guess? Sure. Uh, I would think so. And I have theories why that's the case. I think part of it is kind of, um, have you ever, have you heard about the kind of mentality when you're at like the grocery store and you are looking at, you know, buying a bag of chips or whatever, and there's like 40 different types of chips to pick from and there are too many options and you just you have like option paralysis and you can't decide on anything because there's so many options and you don't know which is the best one and you don't know what bag you want. And then you just walk away and you don't buy anything at all. I think to some degree people will feel that about cars. So there's so many parts and so many components that do so many things. And although they know that they probably should do something, they don't know what to do or how to do it and it's just too much there's too many things going on and then they just like walk away i think is a lot of times what happens and then that's mixed with the idea of not really knowing um how to do stuff or what you know whether it's good or bad or the timeline this needs to be accomplished in and so it just goes by the wayside and doesn't get done at all and so you know people don't know I think what oil actually does, you know, like for instance, your piston never actually touches the cylinder wall. It, the metal never touches the metal. There's always like a molecular level of oil around the piston, which is why it's lubricated, which is why it doesn't weld itself to the cylinder. But I don't think people realize that they don't realize that, you know, the more you drive, the more your oil degrades and kind of loses, um, it's like lubricative properties. And so, you know, they don't, they don't get that your oil is breaking down and that what's going to happen if I don't have oil and they don't know how to replace the oil or what oil to buy. And when all these kind of options 
kind of stir together, um, I just think it, it doesn't get done, and then something kind of catastrophic happens. Yeah, or it's a lot easier than just go to the dealership instead and you know have someone else take care of the unknown, sure. which is your vehicle, I right. guess. And a, and a lot of times, I think for a lot of people, it's easier just to pay twice the amount of money to get someone else to do it than to figure out how to do it yourself just because there's so many kind of things going on. Yeah, that, that does make sense. And like, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. You sure. know, I don't really know much about how my cars work is or my car work is as well. And I didn't know that about the engine and just how important oil is. I knew it was important, but sure. like, this sounds like very important. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if, if I don't do it right, then there'll be, you know, issues for me. And, and if, I mean, for most people who just go to work every day, it, it's probably not as uh, pertinent but for people who maybe have like a truck and they're hauling heavy things or people who are doing like performance stuff where they're really pushing their car, the more stress you put your oil under, the hotter it gets, the more it breaks down and the more it becomes useless. So if you're really hammering on your, your engine and it's getting really hot and the oil is getting really hot, you'll have to change that a lot sooner than someone who just goes to work every day and kind of, you know, goes easy on the engine and just goes 35 miles an hour down the road. Yeah, that makes sense as well. So you have to think about how it's being used and, and that kind of changes what it'll be like. So I, I really want to go back to what you were saying more towards the beginning about yeah. modding your car. Sure. What are some of the modifications you might make? Is it things like, I don't know if you, I would adjust the engine maybe because that's, you know, in my mind, more fragile. Mm -hmm. And um, so I don't know if there's a way to make your pistons more efficient. And that might be a mod. But what are some things which are like maybe common mods or I've seen people lower their cars, you know, and I sure. don't know if that's a style thing or if there's a reason behind it. Um, you know, what, what do people do when they're modding their cars? Right. Um, so people, you can like slam your car, right? So that's when like your rocker rails, like the body of your car is touching the asphalt. You know, oh, okay. You can do that. Um, most of the time when you see that on the street, it's probably just for aesthetics. And to be completely honest, it's probably damaging the car more than it is doing anything else. Um, there is something to be said, though, if you're kind of racing or doing some sort of autocross or something to lower your center of gravity so you have less of a likelihood of having body roll or physically rolling over or something along those lines. Um, have you ever seen when uh, a set of tires on a car is very tilted? They tilt them inwards towards the yep. body of the car? Yep. I don't think I've that? noticed that before. Sometimes it might be more pertinent around car shows or something, but you'll see all four tires that are very slanted inward to the car, um, and it's called camber. And so what's really cool is that if you drift... Um, usually when you see it on cars on the street, again, it's useless. It's just degrading the tires. It's not really beneficial in any way. But in drifting or even um, kind of high-performance racing like Formula One, when you go around a turn and you're putting a lot of G-forces on your car, when your tire is at a significant slant standing still, it's actually completely flat as you go around the turn. So in Formula One, in real time, they can change their camber. So when they know they're about to go around a really tight turn, their tires will, will tilt inward. 
So when they're getting multiple G-forces on their car, all their tires are flat. Because if they didn't do that when they went around the turn, then their tires would be tilted. And you want as much kind of rubber on the road as you possibly can. Okay. Are there other things which you might be doing at a high level like that? I didn't know you could tilt tires like that. That seems really cool. Yeah. It's something we don't get to experience with our cars. But... And just uh, interject, Formula One is like the pinnacle of um, kind of automotive racing and just in general. And so a lot of stuff is designed and made for Formula One. And then like 10 years later, we'll trickle down into consumer cars. Okay. So a lot of companies will put a lot of funding into Formula One and do a lot of science and research and um, test it on racing because racing is such a uh, demanding thing that, you know, stuff wears out and breaks and whatever. And then years later, you'll see those things that, you know, were in Formula One years ago that are now in consumer cars. Do you, do you have an example of something which kind of took that trajectory, started at Formula One, and now, you know, you and I have that in our cars? I think a lot of it is just kind of engine technology. I, I don't know specifically, but just kind of um, the different metals that they use and, and ways about going, uh, making stuff internally within the engine. Um that just wouldn't be practical enough to say, I'm going to design this specifically for a Ford Taurus. Right. You know, <laughs> uh, it's much more practical when you got your use out of it in Formula One, and now you can just apply it to a lot of different kind of models that are in your company. Okay. And so then are you really into, you know, the racing, and do you keep up with, um, you know, the sport of racing? Um, I try to watch formula one uh as much as i can um that's not to say i watch it a lot just because life is super busy but when i can i do enjoy it um formula one i think is just such a complicated thing um your body gets put under so much stress i remember hearing an announcer say once that sometimes when they're going around these turns it's it as if you laid on your dining room table and you stuck your head off the end and then you put a hundred pound weight on your head. Um, wow. There's so much pressure pushing on your body as you go around these turns that uh, it's just immense. Like they have to work out just as much as any other athlete, just of how much like pressure that's on their body. And you're thinking about, you know, I think there's this misconception that you're just putting your, foot on the gas pedal and trying to go as fast as you can but when you're doing these kind of longer races that are tens and tens of laps um, or hundreds sometimes you're not just trying to go as fast as you can you're trying to think of like how many sets of tires do you have um, you know they're limited to a certain amount of tires and then of, of tire changes and then each of those tires can have a different level of um, hard or softness and so soft tires have more grip, but they wear out faster. So if all of your tire changes that you're allotted are soft, the softest tires possible, you're not going to make it through the whole race. You're, you're, all your tires will blow out before the race is over. And so you're thinking about what tires do I want to pick for this racetrack? And how many laps can I go on these tires? And you're thinking about camber and you're thinking about when I need to refuel and you're, all this stuff is kind of going in your mind and you have a crew chief that's talking to you you know, through this process, but it's just so much more of a, a complicated thing than just trying to go as fast as you possibly can. 
And then at the same time, you have a force on your body and you're trying to hold yourself up as well. Which Absolutely. Is, that's cool. It, it kind of adds a lot of value to it, knowing more about just how hard it, it, it is, right? And we have, with modern Formula One cars, you could actually drive upside down at speed. I think it's maybe somewhere between 16 and 100 miles an hour. Once you hit that speed, they create so much downforce. So there's so much pressure pushing the car onto the ground that if the engine allowed it, because you, you can't invert most engines because all the oil would drain down and then there wouldn't be any oil in the crankcase. Um, if that was resolved, they could drive upside down because there's so much downforce that's pressing on the car. That the tires would just hit the road again and keep going, or like yep. So with all the splitters and spoilers and stuff that are directing air down, it would literally just stick it to the ceiling as long as you kept driving forward. Oh, so you're saying you could drive on like the top of a a tunnel, a tunnel. Yes, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's awesome. That's really cool. So, yeah, I've learned a lot about cars today. Um, which I didn't know, even getting into racing, which I didn't expect. That was a lot of fun. And so I thank you for teaching us about, you know, engines and um, your own experience with, you know, vehicles as well. Yeah, no, it was a great time. And I, I appreciate you uh, having me on. I, I always enjoy kind of um, relaying my passion to other people.